It's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the Paul Williams episode of The Muppet Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to Muppeturgy. This is David Levy, and here with me today are Michal Richardson, Adam Grossworth, and Christy Bauer. We do that in a different order every week just so you know that we're live. And to confuse ourselves, because that's fun. Uh, (laughs) Not confusing at all. We have no corrections uh, this episode. So let's get right to it. This is the Paul Williams episode of The Muppet Show. It was the eighth episode of the show made. uh, And the sixth episode aired in New York. So roughly the same-ish. This aired in New York after the Joel Gray episode. It was uh, taped in June of 1976 and aired in New York on October 25th, 1976. And this episode was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Writing for a Variety, Comedy, or Music Program. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. Paul Williams was a singer-songwriter of that first generation in the 70s of singer-songwriters. I say was, but he's still around and kicking. In fact, uh, there's a documentary about him called Still Alive that came out in 2011, but is still accurate. (laughs) (laughs) As of this recording, don't jinx us. Yeah, (laughs) Right. We we are a little punchy tonight, and I'm just going to mention that up top, because while some of this will get cut out, uh, some of it won't. (laughs) Paul Williams, for our purposes, is probably best known because he wrote the songs for the Muppet movie, but he just wrote hit after hit after hit in the seventies, some of which are better known because of the bands that cover them. Some of which you might know in his renditions. I'm not going to list all of them, but we will in the show notes have a link to a Spotify playlist, just of all of his hits. Some of them include old fashioned love song, which was a hit for three dog night, rainy days and Mondays. And we've only just begun for the carpenters, you and me against the world for Helen ready uh, all the way up to songs for folks like Daft Punk, like he really just kept on writing and writing and writing. He also was uh, one of those people who was an actor, but also a television personality. He loved to do the talk show circuit. He was a frequent guest on The Tonight Show. He was on lots of variety shows. He would show up as a guest star on TV. He was in a few movies, most notably Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, for which he also wrote the score. That movie is a little bit of a mindfuck. And if you like stylish production design and coke-fueled nonsense, I highly recommend checking it out. Uh, He's been nominated for a ton of Oscars. He won Best Song for Evergreen, which he co-wrote with Barbara Streisand for A Star is Born. After his big decade in the spotlight in the 70s, he faded away a little bit, largely due to his drug and alcohol problems. In 1990, he got clean and actually became a sobriety counselor and has devoted a lot of his second career to helping other people get and stay clean as well. He's had a little bit of a third career since 2009 as the president of ASCAP, which is the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, a trade organization that's been around since 1914 that protects the copyright of songs, basically. Just some other random stuff that I thought was neat about him. He wrote the Love Boat theme song. He wrote the score to the movie The Secret of Nim. He was the voice of the Penguin in Batman the Animated Series. He's just got a sort of fun and fanciful career. I really, really recommend that if you enjoy this episode, check out the documentary about him still alive, which is streaming on Amazon Prime. It's it's a quirky documentary. It's not Uh, like here's his life from beginning to end, but rather it's sort of the story of this director, Stephen Kessler deciding to make the documentary because he kind of wants to be friends with Paul Williams. And in the course of making the documentary, we do learn a lot about 
who Paul Williams is today and what are the lessons that he learned through this career and his ups and downs. And uh, I, I've seen it a couple of times. I find it pretty, pretty moving. So that's Paul Williams. <laughs> I didn't know anything about him except for his Muppet stuff until yesterday. Um, <laughs> but I mean, like then you, like you listen to that Spotify playlist, uh, which I did yesterday and, and like, you, you know, all of those songs, right? Like he was seventies pop music. It's kind of remarkable. Totally coincidentally, um, the slate podcast, flashback uh which actually just ended uh unfortunately but the archives are are all there um did an episode on phantom of the paradise um which i knew nothing about and i was listening to that and i was like oh paul williams we have an episode coming up i should go watch it uh and it is bonkers uh david's description (laughs) didn't quite do its bunkosity justice um it's rentable uh, uh online and i i highly recommend it uh, oh, and speaking of bonkers movie musicals that he's attached to, we also didn't even mention Bugsy Malone. Which I just saw for the first time last week, and whoo boy, is that bonkers. Good bonkers or bad bonkers? Uh, just bonkers bonkers. <laughs> Can you describe it in, the, in the, the central conceit of it? Sure. So Bugsy Malone is a pastiche a parody of 30s gangster movies starring actual children. <laughs> And in the songs, uh, they're all lip syncing to adults' voices, including in several spots, Paul Williams's voice. Huh. It's very, very, very strange. And instead of gunfights, they have cream pie fights, right? Yeah, like the, the, the guns shoot out whipped cream or something. It's very, very strange. Wow, that sounds extremely not for me. But And uh, Jodie Foster is one of the stars. Yeah, Jodie Foster and Scott Bayo. Wow. Oh my goodness. I forgot Scott Bayo. <laughs> Phantom of the Paradise is like is not like it is Faust meets Phantom of the Opera meets Rocky Horror. So meets Picture of Dorian Gray. Meets Picture of Dorian Gray, only worse than all those things. But if that sounds like a thing you would like, you should definitely check it out. No, I want to watch um, the one with the pie fights. Yeah. <laughs> What's amazing to me about Phantom of the Paradise is that it was made in between when Rocky Horror was on stage and when it was made into a film. So I don't know if Brian De Palma had seen Rocky Horror or not, but there's so much similarity that is hard to believe like if if one didn't influence the other then like what the fuck were they putting up their noses i mean we know exactly (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Um, but yeah anyway you know we we talk a lot about how how fame has and pop culture have changed since 1976 and you know he's just such an interesting like pop star to look at now and i don't mean that disparagingly though it sounds it and there's a running gag in this episode that we'll talk about about his height like he he keeps talking about how short he is and it's just like he's not somebody who i think would be a music star in 2021 or even in 1985 right in in the mtv era so to have him be pretty famous even the way he sings is like slightly unusual um which we'll hear in a little bit um i just i find him very interesting and i'm really glad we got to do kind of a deep dive this week uh let's actually hear kermit describe him our special guest is mr paul williams singer composer actor and all-around good guy and we're not going to do any jokes about his size but he's such a cute little fellow we're going to make him an honorary muppet like that's just weird to me and also delightful and also, it turns out, foreshadowing. Indeed. Why don't you get Michal, did you have any Paul Williams priors, and what did you think of this episode? This was a sweet little episode with a few extra moments of yikes. Um, but overall, 
I enjoyed those 26 minutes of my life. I think it was fine. I think Paul Williams uh, did a very sweet job. And it's interesting that they uh, Kermit promises that they're not going to make any jokes about his size, except then they proceed to make jokes about his size throughout the entire episode. They talk about making him an honorary Muppet. They do a joke where um, he's excited to be the tallest person on the show. And then he proceeds to be surrounded by uh, full body Muppets who are taller than he is. And they do a cute joke in the talk spot that we're going to save for later. The thing is, he is kind of Muppety. (laughs) There's something about the way that he delivers his songs. Like he holds his mouth very tightly and then he kind of unleashes the song as though he can't control it. And I know, Adam, that the humanoid Muppets kind of creep you out. And I think that it has something to do with their faces being shaped a little differently than regular Muppets, where it's this tiny little mouth situation. But when we see that there are two Paul Williams Muppets standing on either side of Paul Williams, and they're all doing the exact same thing with their mouth, there is actually something cute about it. Yeah, I was going to say this till we got to the to the number, but I, I actually I found those Muppets quite delightful and i i can't i can't you may have just explained why i because i couldn't put my finger on why they work for me um and the connie stevens and julia prowse didn't but yeah i i i liked them the other thing about the short bit i mean like yes he's short but like okay in one of the short bits he is wearing an absolutely delightfully 1976 i believe denim jumpsuit so let's just clock that if you're trying to look taller that is not the way but also because there's not another human like even in the scene with the full body muppets you actually can't tell ever how tall or short he is which i just thought was like slightly funny and and weird i mean that's because that's not actually not the, the joke is he's taller than the muppets but Yes, but he could still be 5'11 and be taller than Muppets, and it wouldn't make a difference. I don't know. Anyway, Christy, what did you think? Well, to prepare for this episode, I actually went and watched Still Alive, the documentary about him, and I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. And there's a point in the documentary where Stephen Kessler, the director, talks about how, as a TV-watching kid in the 70s, that the appeal of Paul Williams was that he was funny, but he also wrote and sang like melancholic songs about alienation and loneliness and a desire to belong. And then later, like Paul himself talks about how the thing that he got out of his moment of fame in the monoculture was this feeling that he'd finally belonged somewhere. And all of those ideas are so baked into the ethos of the Muppets that it's not surprising to me that he went on to be one of their most cherished collaborators. Like, I feel like he, and not because he's a short guy, like (laughs) he he like effortlessly fits in, you know? And, you know, it's not my favorite episode. Um, You know, it does have some yikes moments that we'll get to, but you know, you definitely see the first spark of something that'll go on to be one of the, best uh creative partnerships of the the end of the 20th century and beyond and i don't know i find something really beautiful about that as like an origin story Uh david i think what i'm learning about myself is if there's a really good musical number in the first five minutes of the show then it's a show that i love and if it's a really good musical number but it doesn't come until the end of the show i find the show more mixed and this puts the best number right up front. And so, great episode. It's a, it's a weird episode. It's not an even episode. It ends on a very strange down note, which we'll talk about later. But uh, I liked it. And it, you know, made me laugh. It made me hum. So Interesting, because I watched this first, as I always do, on DVD. 
which means that you and I had different first musical numbers, which is a great segue. All right. So with a a musical guest, it uh, stands to reason that we have many musical numbers to talk about. So the first one actually does not feature Paul Williams at all. It is a version of the uh, jazz standard, All of Me. All of me. Why not take all of me? Can't you see? I'm no good without you. Take my lips. I want to lose them. Take my arms. So this song's from 1931. It was written by Gerald Marks and Seymour Simons, two fellas both from Michigan, I found out. And interestingly, the success of this particular song led Gerald Marks to become a member of ASCAP, and he remained active in the organization for decades and eventually ended up serving on the board of directors from 1970 to 1981, which is a connection with current ASCAP president, Paul Williams. And as a member of ASCAP, I just would like to say... Uh, nothing but respect for my president. The setup of this number is really, really strange. <laughs> it's uh, a whatnot monster who, over the course of the number, how how do you even phrase this? Rips off his body parts <laughs> and puts them in a box. Yeah, yeah this, gives this, them to the other monster. Yeah, self disassembles and gives them to uh, an, another monster who Muppet, Muppet Wiki re- refers to as his lover, which I think is a bit presumptuous. Um, <laughs> I, I found this slightly unnerving. Uh, how did you guys feel about it? I mean, yes, but we've talked about this a little bit. It's a thing that I like when they do that. I actually am not sure they've done yet in 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 our rewatch so far, where they take the lyrics of a song uber literally, which which will become a hallmark of the show. And so I like I love this because it's right. Like obviously, it's you know why not take all of me? Take my lips, take my heart, take my arm is a metaphor, not for the Muppets, <laughs> right? And this is something that I like was missing in something like Comedy Tonight. And also just the puppetry is like super cool, right? Like that the, the this this monster is is constructed in such a way, right, that there's there's black underneath so that the, the parts can be taken away. And like if you're looking really closely in HD, you can see, you know, you can see the pieces underneath, but like still not really, unless you're us and you're looking for it. It just looks really cool to me. Also, these these monsters are gay, right? Well, that depends on how you feel about Miss Kitty. Well, I didn't realize it was a re- it was a redressed Miss Kitty, and uh, they definitely both read as male to me. And this is definitely a love song. And the one monster give the other gives the other monster its heart. I'm just saying, I felt represented and seen. How often does somebody hand you their still beating heart? That's really personal, Michal. <laughs> <laughs> we don't judge here. Uh, so I just I love this as a Jerry Nelson performance. The voice that he gives this monster is like if Jimmy Durante and Harry Monster had a child together, this is what that child would sound like. <laughs> and, and I just find it very charming and appropriately showboaty. There's something a little weird about the way that this is literally framed. There's like a like a yeah. cutout 
framing the picture, which I think is supposed to emphasize this is kind of old timey. But I also wonder if that's a little bit of a holdover from like live puppetry, because that gives the puppeteers a little more space to hide behind. Yeah, I wondered if they needed it because of however they were hiding the the puppeteers. And as as Adam mentioned, they they needed to hide more bits of a puppeteer than they normally would. The puppet says, take my arms, I'll never use them, and proceeds to rip off its arms while its hands are still waving around. So I don't know whether they used any techniques to hide puppeteers after the fact, but I don't know if the frame helped with that. I did wonder about it because it also meant that we didn't get as close a look at the puppets as we could have because so much of the frame is taken up by the frame. Yeah, and they're framed pretty far away. Like there's there's no close up in the it's just a single shot at a distance. Yeah. Um you can see it, it's it's black on black. Like if you if you look you can see the the arm under there, but it's still pretty cool. The other thing that's weird is that Kermit introduces it as being uh, done up in a brand new way. So that instantly had me thinking about the the how and the the why of it. Once again, gay. In 1976, that would have been extremely novel. The song was originally recorded by Bell Baker, but uh, is most famously known as a song that Frank Sinatra did, and that's because he recorded it four different times. Get all of me Can't you see I'm just a mess Without you Take my lips I want to lose them Get a piece of these arms I'll never use them Your goodbye Now I'm just imagining Frank Sinatra like... <laughs> Pulling his nose off his face and handing it to somebody, and you know what? I'm not mad at it. And you know what? There's something about his delivery. It actually does. I I could believe that he means it literally. Yeah. Um, and this this is not this number is not on the DVD, presumably for music rights uh, issues. So our next number is, I believe, the first song that we've seen so far performed by the person who wrote it. You swear you've heard it before as it slowly rambles on and on. No need in bringing them back because they've never really gone. That's just an old fashioned love song coming down at three part harmony. That's just an old fashioned love song. One I'm sure they're all for you and me. You know, actually, what the first song that we saw that was performed by the person who wrote it was Saxon Violence. Oh, yeah. <laughs> first, first, first song sung by uh, yes. <laughs> the person who wrote it. Yeah. Three of the persons who wrote it. Or the person who wrote it times three, I should say. <laughs> well, Saxon Violence, I mean, the only... The performer, if if uh, the person who wrote it being Jim Henson and the person performing it was mostly Zoot with the assistance of the occasional triangle from Menomina. But Menomina so, is performed by Jim Henson, at least in I the know. Menomina so sketch, I'm just, so we assume in that sketch, but maybe not. Yeah, so maybe one-tenth of it is performed by <laughs> its composer. <laughs> I was trying to think mathematically of how how many strikes on the triangle or what fraction of the song that is. <laughs> It's a lot of math for this late in the evening. <laughs> so yeah, so this is an uh, old-fashioned love song written by Paul Williams, but made famous by Three Dog Night. It was 
hit in 1971. It went all the way to number four. He actually wrote the song for the Carpenters, but they didn't want it. (laughs) But they did end up performing it later. Uh, And uh, the setup is uh, Paul Williams himself in uh, in an attic on a, a, a rainy night listening to the radio and then out of the, the radio emerges two Muppet versions of himself, as well as our friends, the Gogolala Jubilee Jug Band and the Jerry Nelson Muppet from the country trio. Like I said, uh, up top, I found these Paul Williams Muppets delightful and it, it's extra weird because there's two of them. So it should be like really unnerving. Like, like they, they cloned him somehow. I don't know. Maybe it's because they're smaller than the, the Connie Stevens and Juliet Prowse Muppets, but I don't know. Or because they're doing something, maybe. I liked it because it made sense in the way that in his recording of the song, he sings harmony with himself. So how, right. do, you, how do you literalize that? Well, there you go. Right. And their performer, like they're not just pre- presented to him as a slave at the end of the show. <laughs> like they're performing. So they're, they're active and they're, they're really cute the way that they move. Well, also the, the Connie Stevens and Juliet Prowse Muppets have like eyelashes and weird lips. These just kind of have like beady eyes and hair and they yeah. kind of called it a day. Right. Um, and <laughs> They're more and Muppety in that way. Yeah. Right. And they had Paul Williams' voice, which, you know, again, a little creepy if you think about it, but, you know, it works. The DVD trivia um, did say that he he has one of them. Um, so that uh, that answers at least one. You know, we were curious about that in those other episodes. Um, it doesn't fully answer the question, but at least he got to keep uh, one of them, which is either a dream come true or deeply creepy, depending on how you think about it. <laughs> but yeah, and there's a neat little depending on whether sorry. No, no, please. It depends on whether it comes to life at night and you know, ages on your behalf and stuff. It might be useful in that way. He is still alive. There's a neat little bit of um set design. It's like forced perspective, and I think the chair that Paul Williams is sitting in, also hiding like the opening, like when the radio opens, and you like there obviously has to be a way for the puppeteer's arms to be you know there and you can't see it at all so it really adds this this element of you know lifelikeness to the puppets popping out it's really cool and really simple they're so good at it that i never stop to think like where is the puppeteer or you know how do they all fit even though it's a very small space yeah it's only because we're watching these more than once and there's something interesting about partly because we're watching them twice and partly i think because i'm watching the dvd and then watching them on my computer and like you know making gifts and things right there's like a level that i'm both watching them in like two different formats so the like the the transfer is different and so i'm noticing different things the second time through and then just like the act of making a gif means that i'm like staring at it in a different way and i'm finding myself noticing things when we when we talk about bunsen honeydew there's definitely a like oh i wasn't supposed to see that (laughs) moment but of course i like seeing that because you know why are we here and it's uh that was one of the one of the things where i was like oh i actually i fully can't see that and it's only because i'm staring at it that i even am noticing it all right. So this episode's UK spot, for once, is not a weirdly British thing or a, a Rolf thing. I'm in love with a big blue frog. A big blue frog loves me. It's not as bad as it appears. He wears glasses and he's six foot three. So this is I'm in love with a big blue frog, which was written by Leslie or Les, depending on uh, where you read about him, Bronstein, uh, originally recorded by Peter, Paul and Mary. 
And according to a bio that I found attached to a recently done picture book version of I'm in Love with a Big Blue Frog, Leslie Bronstein is a songwriter and performer who was the lead singer of Soft White Underbelly, later known as the Blue Oyster Cult. (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Uh, Now, it should be noted that I I looked it up and Les Bronstein was replaced as lead singer in 1969 before the band became Blue Oyster Cult, but he's going to claim it anyway. Um, And he lives in Crumville, New York with his wife, Carol, and their dog, Valentino, where he pursues his writing and art. That's wonderful. Yeah. There's nothing I don't love about that bio. Yeah. The the bio I I found charming. The description of the book less so. And and, and this is why. So I I mentioned to you guys uh, before we started recording, I'm not a huge fan of the song. (laughs) And I, I think it is affected by this little tidbit that I read about the, this picture book, which was that the song was intended to be like a cry for tolerance, like a, yep, yep. yep. And I was like, absolutely not. It's right in there. It's, it's text. It's not even subtext. She gets into the neighbors are against it because they're afraid their property values will go down, go down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe white people. (laughs) Um, But also weird is the, the Muppet Show setup of this particular song. So uh, it's uh, like a, a whatnot human Muppet named Mary Louise, sung by Fran Brill. And and is this the same little girl Muppet that was in the um, Never Smile at a Crocodile performance? Yes, which we have yes. not yet talked about in the order that these are being released. Okay. Yes, we've seen her performed uh, in the Sandy Duncan episode, which we have watched but uh you the listeners have not yet listened to us review and in that episode she's performed by raleigh cruson who is mostly known as a muppet builder but also sometimes performed mary louise is also one of the muppets front and center in the audience shot that we get every episode Hmm. if you're not looking at the dead muppet behind her (laughs) you'll notice her it's the only place my eye goes now and i hate it If it's in the Jim Neighbors episode, show notes. Please be sure to check that out, or or don't if you you know yeah, want right. to keep your childhood you memories intact. You don't see it. Um, <laughs> but she's singing the song and uh, is surrounded by a chorus of frogs, including a small blue frog, but does not have a, a titular big blue frog. It's a strange choice. And Kermit's in the chorus, which I guess. You can't do a song about frogs on the show without putting Kermit there, but he looks so out of place. I didn't even notice him until the second time I watched it because I, I'm. We've discussed these other frogs there in the Valentine's. I think these are the same frogs, right? They're in the yeah. Valentine's they, they, they recur throughout. Yeah, and I love these frogs, and and maybe that's I, I. I get everything everyone is saying about the song, and I shouldn't like it, but I, there's something about it, like the the vocal arrangement on the ribbits, and just the oh, fact I that hate it's, it, I hate it, I hate it. I, <laughs> And I understand and I feel like I should hate it, but like the something about how weird it is and how much I like those frog puppets, I really like it. And so my eye goes to the frog puppets and also like the 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 puppetry on Mary Louise, like it's just it's just I find it very cute. And then like the second time through, I was like, wait, what's Kermit doing there? Like I didn't even notice him the first time. Like it's not it's not good, but I don't know. I was really charmed by it. I, I was surprised to learn that this was the UK spot because this song was on that Muppet Show album that I had growing up. So it's a weird song to include on an album for the U.S. market if it wasn't actually aired in the U.S. market. I don't know. But I also, part of the reason why I dislike this song is because hearing it as a kid without the visuals, I I had a hard time understanding, like, 
Why is she talking about a big blue frog? Kermit's the frog. Kermit's not blue. He's not particularly big. What's going on here? It doesn't make any sense. Make it stop. Anyway, yeah. Michal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I had a similar experience to yours, having heard it on an album and not seen the visuals until either when I got the DVDs. I don't remember whether I watched the Paul Williams episode. It's possible that I did, but that was a long time ago. But I definitely uh, have the audio in my head much more than the visuals. And then here encountering the puppeteering is just very sweet and sunny and enthusiastic. And she's so into it. And she gives this little, oh yeah, at the end. And at the same time, the frogs are just kind of sitting there. And Kermit especially has this look on his face, like, what am I doing here? How did I get myself (laughs) into this? And how do I get out of this? And I enjoy that contrast. She's very happy to be there. Kermit is not. Oh, and Robin is there. Is that our first time seeing Robin? Robin had already been on TV because he was in the Frog Prince. Oh, right. But I think this is the first time we see him in the Muppet Show. There is something kind of like zombie-ish about the frogs, especially with Kermit being there. Like, it's almost like, if you want to be dark about it, like she has put them under some spell to make them sing in this weird monotone way. Well, all of the other frogs have different eyes to Kermit, and that has always thrown me. Right. They do explain that in, I want to say, either the John Denver episode or possibly the John Denver Christmas special. So uh, we'll put a pin in that and come back to it. The the zombie thing uh, then sort of continues after the number in a moment that I did not find charming in the least when we cut to Statler and Waldorf. What the actual fuck? I'm sure they were in a production of The Frogs by Aristophanes when they were <laughs> young collegiates, and they're just reenacting it. In the pool at Yale. Yeah, no, that makes sense. <laughs> that almost explains it, but, like, not quite. So we have a Wayne and Wanda number. Yeah, so uh, this is a Cole Porter song from 1929 from the show 50 Million Frenchmen. That's all I really have to say about it. Um, well, we should explain what's going on in that number. because We should, we should. Uh, so it's, the the setup is a magic act gone awry. Uh, Wayne is attempting to saw Wanda in half and starts to actually saw her in half. So, uh, I mean, What did they think would happen? I like this because it was a little... It wasn't surprising in the sense that as soon as the first word of the song was out of her mouth, I knew it was going to happen, but it was a little less obvious than some of their other songs. Like, like the something in the song is undefined, so they actually had to put a concept onto it. That's all I got. Had to work a little harder, yeah. <laughs> all right, now our last song is yet another Paul Williams song. So this was a song written by Paul Williams and Kenny Asher that Paul himself recorded on an album in 1974 called A Little Bit of Love. And Kenny Asher is uh, notable in the Muppet context uh, because in addition to being a regular collaborator of Paul Williams's, 
uh, he would go on to co-write the songs and score for the puppet movie with Paul Williams. And incidentally, it was just announced this week that the rainbow connection is going to be added to the library of Congress's national recording registry, which is pretty cool. They uh, only pick 25 recordings a year and uh, it's been deemed culturally significant. So that's a win for Muppet people everywhere. So this song, in a weird way, it sort of feels like like an amalgamation of multiple standby song setups for The Muppet Show, because you have Rolf the piano, but you also have the electric mayhem playing completely straight in the background. And then you have a random assortment of other Muppets who swoop in halfway through and provide backup. It's It's very sweet. Like, there's not a whole lot to say about it other than it's really sweet. And the song reminds me actually a lot musically of uh, When the River Meets the Sea from Emmett Otter, which is another Paul Williams song. You know, this very, very sad, sad song about a love I used to know, you know, for kids. <laughs> um, I, I I found this very boring, but I also thought that, you know, Paul singing with Rolf at the piano was very sweet. I think this is the first time we've seen a guest and Rolf together like that. And, you know, I'm always here for a chorus of Muppets. What? Why is George here? Like Why George not? is I, George has a job. He's not a performer on the show. He's in show business. <laughs> it's been established. <laughs> yes, I found it strange. Also, the guru. It was just a really odd assortment of Muppets. Even as as I, I as missed I, Droop. Droop belonged yeah, there. He exactly. wasn't there. I want to know where he was. Mm. Exactly. It was a very justice for Droop. As much as I love the the you know when the the sense that this is, this is an ensemble and it's not just you know all frogs or all pigs, I found this particular selection very strange. Droop had a family reunion in Cleveland. He couldn't be there. <laughs> This did feel like the closing number of a show that airs much later in the evening than yeah. the Muppet Show typically aired. Like mm. at the end of an episode of Saturday Night Live, this would have felt like the perfect like sing you to sleep kind of number. That makes sense. Can we talk about how both of the Paul Williams numbers are songs about how you hear a song and it makes you feel sentimental? You know, you just, for kids. You just described like 62% of Paul Williams songs. <laughs> <laughs> Does he exclusively write songs about other songs? Songception. <laughs> it's a niche. Yeah, why not? <sighs> why are there so many songs about songs? About songs. About rainbows. <laughs> you know, it's not the rainbows, it's the and what's on the other side. That's the thing I don't think there's that many songs about. I think there's one song about that, and now two. Plus that movie with Carrie Fisher and the Munchkins. <laughs> I tried to figure out what the Rainbow Connection was because, like, Kermit was trying so hard to figure out what it was. And he also had a song about being green. And I would yell at the screen. Like, the some, he's like, someday we'll find it. And I'm like, it's green. You're green. You're talking about the rainbow. Aww. We're talking about colors. Why haven't you figured this out yet, Kermit? They're I'm in just... the middle. You're the G and Roy G. Biv. You're right in the center. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's not that hard. This got me worked up as a child. <laughs> Ready, three, two, one, fire! It is shot out of a cannon time, and we're starting out with our first Muppet Labs. Bunsen is showing off the Muppet all-purpose tenderizer to tenderize your dishes. Uh, not your cooked dishes that you have cooked yourself, but your cooking dishes that you use to cook them in so that they don't break. Astute viewers may note that Beaker is not there yet, so it's Bunsen all alone, and he's letting his freak flag fly. He's very excited about these tender dishes and feels rather tenderly about them. Oh, it sets me all a quiver. <laughs> well, 
It's lovely. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know what else to say about that. He's into that oh. dish. Oh, it's so creepy. Uh, this is the thing I mentioned earlier um, in in the Disney Plus transfer. You could very clearly see that the two dishes on the table are entirely different from one another, which, I mean, of course mm-hmm. they are. It's a bit. They're props. Like, this is not a criticism. Um, but there's one that he picks up and breaks, and then the, the tenderized one, which is um, floppy, uh, is is like an entirely different texture from moment one. Um, but then there's a bit with a ladle, which is just like a really neat, bit of prop comedy that I actually like don't know how it works. So that's nicely done. It is cool. He picks it up and it looks like a regular ladle, but that's no ladle. <laughs> <laughs> and given how he feels about the dishes, that may be his wife. <laughs> I just, I, for a second, I had convinced myself that somebody was, that there was a Muppet that was going to pop out from behind a door and yell, that was my knife. But (laughs) (laughs) that's not my life in real life. That's just what happens in my head. Uh, That snow ladle, that's a prop that floops over after he tenderizes it. That technical term? (laughs) This just reminded me of the very first time I heard the word tenderizer, which was, I got... (laughs) Oddly specific memory. You'll understand why. It was the very first time I was ever stung by a bee. I was outside at school in elementary school and I got stung on the nose. And, you know, the very first time you get some people have, you know, deadly allergic reactions to it. And so the, the teachers were freaking out and didn't know what to do. And one of them was like, I've heard you should put meat tenderizer on it. And I had no idea what that meant. And it freaked me out. And then they ended up just putting ice and paper towels on it. I wasn't allergic and it was fine. So. Oh, glad you're here. Thank you. Me too. Oh, is the whole thing with him being weird with the plate a double entendre on tenderizer? Oh. Like, because I mean, he's being tender yeah, with the tender. Yeah, plate? that was my thought. Yeah. Well, I'm slow. To be fair, I still don't really know what meat tenderizer is. Do you sprinkle it on like he does with the little can he has? Yeah. Yeah. Great. It's like hey, you know how you take a like you would take a like a a mallet to a steak. That's what I had pictured whenever I pictured a meat tenderizer. Yeah. So it's a it's a thing that does sort of the, the same. chemical version of that. Yeah. That sounds less fun. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when applied to your nose. Let's all stop saying meat and tenderizer. <laughs> meat tenderizer. I have to say, not knowing anything about what it's made of or what it technically does, like, why would you want to put that on your food? Or on your ladle. Especially because it's so much fun to bang your steak with a mallet. It's less fun to bang your nose with a mallet, though. Meat tenderizer refers to a powdered, naturally derived enzyme powder. The enzyme most commonly used is papain, which comes from papayas, or bromelain, which comes from pineapples. So it's all natural. I will say that 2020 for me was the year of pounding chicken. (laughs) (laughs) So if anyone wants recipes for what to do with pounded chicken, I have quite a few. Did that result in coos babies? That's that's my my favorite Joan Didion book. The funny thing is, I think I declared it the year of pounding chicken before the pandemic, and then it just turned out I had a really good stress relief tool oh my at goodness. my disposal. <laughs> meat is you set your goal for the year. And the enzymes helped to break down the meat fibers. <laughs> Coos babies. David, I'm glad you were able to state your goals for the year and 
uh, manifest them and carry them out and that your goal was bounding chicken. Listen, some people make totally unachievable New Year's resolutions. I'm a realist. <laughs> when am I going to end up doing this year? Said you were going to pound your chicken. Pound you chicken. Did. <laughs> this is my official endorsement of the George Foreman grill. <laughs> Wait, and now oh. I have questions. <laughs> <laughs> because one of the things you can do with pounded chicken is grilling it. You pound chicken so that it's all the same width so that it cooks evenly. An unpounded chicken breast isn't going to cook on a George Foreman grill. It's too thick. The insides will be raw. And that's gross. I'm just glad Gonzo's not in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Or about the reality of pounding chickens. That does not sound culturally uplifting. Don't knock until you try it. Gonzo was in the chorus. He actually is in this episode. I was just making a joke. Mm-hmm. It's unrelated to pounding chickens. I mean, depending on your definition of pounding chickens, we haven't had a Gonzo bit in a few episodes. I just. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. That's what. That's why I made the joke. Yeah, wait, you guys didn't go there? I went there. <laughs> Thank you for going there. the innocent one. <laughs> We've established that. Uh, we're, he's, always, we're, he's always hitting things with mallets. I actually didn't go there at all. I'm usually, I'm usually the first one. <laughs> we haven't watched Gonzo eat a tire or a pound of chicken in a few weeks. That's all. We've got a poem by Rolf, which is uh, somewhat canonical. It became a somewhat recurring segment. We're going to see another poem by Rolf later this season in the Valerie Harper episode, where Rolf gets interrupted when he's trying to have a serious poetic moment. And here he's trying to read a poem that he wrote about silence. And he's disrupted at first by George the janitor, who just wants to disrupt him by sweeping the floor with some disdainful looks that make me very happy. And then we get a series of increasingly loud Muppets. Uh, Ralph manages to shoo them all away only to have Kermit ask him to keep it down because we're trying to do a show. Aren't they on stage though? I mean, it's a maybe joke. This- I know, but you know, <laughs> confused. maybe this is the part of the stage show that happens off stage. I don't know. I mean, if that's off stage, where is that location? <laughs> do they have a garden in the back? <laughs> We haven't seen inside all the dressing rooms yet. Yeah, I have no answer. It's a joke. I love this because Rolf is so frequently shunted off to the side or only does bits with one other Muppet. So to see him part of a big ensemble piece felt nice. And I particularly love that it ended with Rolf and Kermit interacting, which is a rare treat. Yeah. And we see Rolf losing his cool, which rarely happens. We have a, a blackout spot with Paul Williams talking about how excited he is to be doing the Muppet show. For the first time in my life, I am the tallest person on the show. (laughs) For the first time in my life, I will cry in front of 30 million people. One very lovely thing that happens here is that, uh, as you can imagine, uh, we have Sweetums and Thog and one of the mutations who have joined Paul Williams on stage and are towering over him. But they're all consoling him because they know how sad it is to be short. I was really struck by that 30 million people line. I wondered about that. 
Yeah, I mean, another shift in the in the culture, like the very idea that 30 million people would watch any TV show, let alone a syndicated TV show. Um, and also, I did check this episode was made before any episodes had, had aired. So, like, the, the idea that that's just even a guess, that like, oh, yeah, 30 million people will watch this. I mean, even as a joke, like, that is mind-boggling in, in 2021. I mean, do, do we know what the viewership was actually like? Well, according to... The Muppet Wiki. In 1990, Entertainment Tonight said, over the years, The Muppet Show became the most widely seen TV program in the world, with an estimated 235 million viewers. Good heavens. Well, then maybe he did cry in front of 30 million or 100 million people. I mean, this was this was almost 10 years later, but the like, the MASH finale, which I know at the time was the, like, the most watched series when it aired, uh, so it was an easy thing to Google, was seen by 105 million, uh, almost 106 million people. Uh, in 1983. Um, so yeah, so 30, you know, like 30 would not have been that many, but for today, that's enormous. So the fact that they were just like, sure, 30 sounds right. <laughs> just <laughs> strikes me as a lot. Um, because sure. things have changed a great deal. For contrast, I think Disney plus just hit a hundred million subscribers. So someday they may get the same number of viewers as The Muppet Show. They dare to dream. We have an At The Dance sketch. Your favorite. <laughs> I can't understand it. I just can't seem to hold on to a job. My last one only lasted for 10 minutes. Hey, what were you doing? I was a librarian. <laughs> uh, she's always perfect, even though it's the same joke every time. Uh, we also have a joke uh, I like very much where Mildred is telling George how old her son is, and George can't believe it. <sighs> I'll be darned. You say that's your boy? <laughs> how could you have a son that age? Uh, I didn't. When I had him, he was just a baby. Twist. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm going to play Cannon Police here. Yeah. Do it. This is all new information about Mildred. In the Muppet Valentine show, which was only... What, a year, two years before this? Mildred was childless. <gasps> That's what I'm saying. Big twist. Drama in Cleveland. <laughs> Escondolo. She's out of Cleveland now. She can stop hiding the, the years she went away to have a baby. She wasn't in a convent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we didn't clip it, but I do want to point out that uh, Piggy makes a ham joke in this at the dance, which... Uh, I mean, I guess it's, you know, she's allowed to use the word, but it does seem like a little bit of a little bit hypocritical from last week. Hmm. Yeah. Her perspective seems to change every week, but so does her performer. We've got a talk spot where Kermit once again goes back on his promise to not make jokes about how little and cute Paul Williams is because the whole talk spot is uh, Kermit talking about famous short people and making jokes about elevator shoes. He asks Paul Williams, if he ever wears lifts, and then he proceeds to beep him on the nose and send him just up into the rafters or possibly into space. Now Paul is someone everybody can look up to. <laughs> and uh, I, I appreciate the, the way that Kermit delivers that line. It, it has the energy of an early Muppet, extremely violent commercial. It kind of feels like he's looking into the camera and he's about to ask us now, how do you feel about Wilkins coffee or other thing he's about to threaten us with? I appreciated the sketch because. In the same way that I get a kick out of noticing the rods that move the Muppets' arms and other instances of being able to see a little bit behind the curtain, if you're paying attention, you will notice the wire attached to Paul Williams that's going to lift him up into the rafters. 
I clipped the beginning of this too because the list of um, short celebrities uh, is something. This little guy's got to stick together. Oh, yeah, listen. And besides that, there have been a lot of famous people who were small in size. It's true. Sure, like Napoleon. Uh, Truman Capote. Uh, Mickey Rooney. Tom Thumb. Not to mention the legendary Wally Blattner. Wally Blattner, a favorite. Wally Blattner. Who is Wally Blattner? (laughs) Well, he invented the elevator shoe. Truman Capote and Napoleon, you know, for kids. We've got a comedy sketch, uh, and you might remember me railing against the Muppets trying to write sketch comedy for their guests because it doesn't really seem to work, or it doesn't seem to be their strong suit to try to write these things. Um, but it may surprise you to learn that this is my my favorite moment of the week, and probably my favorite Muppet of the week, and my favorite line of the week. Even though we've we've had the loud lady, but here we've got beautiful Day Monster, who uh, iconically wants to get to Pittsburgh by the cheapest possible means. You got anything cheaper? <laughs> yeah, I can send you to Pittsburgh standing room only on a broken down old bus for about 75 bucks. Uh, you got anything cheaper? <laughs> yeah, I think I can work something out for you, pal. <laughs> hey, Charlie, you want to mail this to Pittsburgh? <laughs> I, I love how determined Beautiful Day Monster is to find something cheaper. He's asked this five times. And I love that Paul Williams, as the travel agent, is uh, equally determined to find a way to put a stop to it. And he does with a 5,000 pound weight. It's so simple, like especially compared to the Jim Neighbors uh, sketch that we, we barely even talked about on that episode. It's just the two of them. And I, I would not say Paul Williams is a great actor. But he like what he does here, his timing is really great. I made a gif of the moment where he pulls the lever and drops the anvil. And just like his face, like the way he he pulls the anvil and like watch or pulls the lever and watches the anvil fall. Like it's just it's all sort of perfect in this way that I wouldn't necessarily expect from him. And I I really, really enjoyed it. I also always love when on TV to create a travel agency, they just slap up a handful of weird travel posters. There was a really weird one for Spain in the background of this particular one. <laughs> Is that not what travel agencies were? Oh, it was, but <laughs> I, mean, I have no concept really. Travel agencies still exist. I had was in the process of booking a trip with one when the pandemic started. Fascinating. Did it have posters just advertising Spain as a country? Yes. Huh, well, there you go. There you go. Um, some weird little Muppet trivia in case anybody wants to know where Beautiful Day Monster came from. Uh, he's been around for a while at this point, uh, ruining people's day. Uh, he got his name from a sketch from the Ed Sullivan show from 1969, where there's a little girl enjoying a beautiful day and he keeps destroying it. Uh, they do this concept a lot. They repeat it on the Muppet show. We'll see it again in the Madeline Kahn episode. Beautiful Day Monster, the puppet, was made in 1966 for an advertisement for some Canadian snack foods that never aired. He was known as the Crown Grabber, and he had two colleagues known as the Flute Snatcher and the Wheel Stealer. And even though uh, nobody ever saw those commercials, uh, Beautiful Day Monster went on to some fame among Muppet nerds and the Wheel Stealer after a few more iterations, had a whole career on Sesame Street as Cookie Monster. Anyway, we've got a Talking Houses joke. 
It's not really a joke. <laughs> My mother is very religious. She's a fanatic? No, she's a church. Hey. <laughs> Anything to add there? Still like the houses. There's, I mean, they're still doing their thing. We've got a Muppet News Flash. Again, Paul Williams, not known for his acting, but still doing this really cute job where he's telling a story that doesn't have much of a beginning or an end. But he's very Muppety about it. So we haven't talked about the backstage plot. This whole episode has been building up to Fozzie's bit on stage, but we've been talking about it backstage. Uh, Scooter has been trying to convince Fozzie that rather than go out there and bomb with his War of 1812 jokes. See what I did there? (laughs) Boo. (laughs) Rather than do that, he should try the old telephone pole bit. So we've seen Fozzie practicing being a telephone pole. Uh, Actually, somewhat successfully, he is mistaken for a telephone pole uh, first by somebody who is stringing a phone wire over his nose. Fozzie, what are you doing? Uh, It's my new act with Scooter. I'm practicing to be a telephone pole. Hmm. That's ridiculous. You don't look like a telephone pole. No one would believe you were a telephone pole. I am a landman for the county. (laughs) On the other hand, what do I know about telephone poles? He also gets attacked by a woodpecker. Why not? And... Then at last, we finally, at the end of the episode, get to the old telephone pole bit. So the curtain opens and uh, Fozzie is dressed as a telephone, not as... Not a pole, indeed. Not as the pole that holds the cables, let us say, with Scooter. Hello, and what's your name? Mike Eisnowitzki. Oh, so you're the telephone pole. (laughs) I mean... It's a Polish joke that's less mean than most Polish jokes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so in my household, I laughed immediately. And my partner, Keith, who is one quarter Polish, just sort of rolled his eyes and goes, oh. <laughs> I was joking just now, but my, my literal notes say, what? He's not a telephone pole. He's a telephone. Oh, I get it. <laughs> um, I do wonder if this joke would have been gotten faster at the time than it was gotten by, I don't know, me. If you Google Muppets telephone pole bit, or even just telephone pole bit without Muppets, you'll find pages and pages of the internet of people asking other people to explain this joke to them. <laughs> I just feel like the the Polish joke was more common at the time, like as a concept. I, I just, I feel like it might have been a, a little quicker in 1976. I thought the joke was funny. I don't think the number of times that we had to go back to backstage for the buildup was worth it for this payoff. Yeah. <laughs> I I would agree with that. It did feel like filler after a while. I did like the scooter dynamic, though. Yeah, it's a new angle for Scooter. Or new if you believe that last week was the first time that we met him and he just wanted to be a gopher and not get on stage, as opposed to other earlier episodes where he did want to get on stage. After last week, I find the level at which uh, Scooter becomes increasingly more assertive to be kind of sinister. Yeah, I think that's why I liked it, because he's not dropping the uncle card this time. Yeah, but he's, I I mean, listen, 
all my bitter dicks. <laughs> but he's a real dick to Fozzie, and he's, you know, like the way that he undermines him in that first scene together just really rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, he is a bit of a Leah Michelle, but I do, I don't know. I found it funny. Besides, uh, you're on soon. Now is no time to panic. Oh, well, see, I, I got 10 minutes of jokes here in the War of 1812. Now is the time to panic. Uh, Good delivery, though. Stetler and Waldorf don't miss an opportunity to make another joke. He's never been so good or so short. Because he's, why are they, he's the telephone. Like, but yeah, the it doesn't make sense. No, I thought they meant short, like brief, because he didn't have uh, much to say. Oh. Like, I didn't even connect it to all the other short jokes. All of Statler and Waldorf in this episode was bad. I'm just going to say I, that. <laughs> I appreciated their very last, uh, last line. I did too, but before we get there, what the fuck was this? Bravo! Encore! Bravo! Encore! <laughs> He's a credit to his race. What race is that? The 100-yard dash. <laughs> <laughs> what? That is a joke. I'm not saying it's a joke that's worth telling. And that was about Paul Williams, let's be clear. But What? It just was weird. There was that and the ribbits and the short joke. It just didn't it didn't feel like them to me. Well, shall we redeem them with their closing line? Yeah, this show is good for what ails me. Yeah. Well, what ails you? Insomnia. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us next week for our discussion of the Charles Asnafoir episode. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word and offer a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. Are there really that many songs about rainbows, though? <laughs> Don't make me make you a playlist, Adam. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs>